0: good evening welcome to the catholic education classes tonight we're looking at the catechism of the catholic church we're making our way through it and we're up to article 3 on page 115 but before we start let's pray in the name of the father son holy spirit amen Dear Lord, we thank you so much for the gift of life and the gift of faith. Come Holy Spirit, help us to know the mind of Christ and to love him and to live every day for him. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning is now and ever shall be, world without end, amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. In Article 3, we're looking at the Incarnation. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and was born of the Virgin Mary. Paragraph 1 The Son of God became man. Why did the Word become flesh? Paragraph four, five, six. With the Nicene Creed, we answer by confessing, For us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate of the Virgin Mary and was made man. Paragraph 457. The Word became flesh for us in order to save us by reconciling us with God, who loved us and sent his Son to be the expiation for our sins. The Father has sent his Son as the Savior of the world, and he was revealed to take away sins. St. Gregory of Nyssa wrote, Sick Our nature demanded to be healed, fallen to be raised up, dead to rise again. We had lost the possession of the good. It was necessary for it to be given back to us. Closed in the darkness, it was necessary to bring us the light. Captives, we awaited a savior. Prisoners, help. Slaves, a liberator. Are these things minor or insignificant? Did they not move God to descend to human nature and visit it, since humanity was in so miserable and unhappy a state? So, the first reason that Jesus became flesh was um, in order to save us. Secondly, in paragraph 458, The word became flesh so that we might know God's love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. By becoming a man, Jesus has helped us come to know God's love, to know it in a real, uh, human way. Paragraph 459. The Word became flesh to be our model of holiness. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. On the mountain of the transfiguration, the Father commands, listen to him. Jesus is the model for the Beatitudes and the norm of the new law. Love one another as I have loved you. This love implies an effective offering of oneself after his example. So we've seen three things. The word became flesh to save us. The word became flesh that we might know God's love. The word became flesh to be our model of holiness. He is our model of how to live life. And finally, in paragraph 460, the Word became flesh to make us partakers of the divine nature. For this is why the Word became man, and the Son of God became the Son of Man, so that man, by entering into communion with the Word, and thus receiving divine sonship, might become a Son of God. For the Son of God became man so that we might become God. The only begotten Son of God, wanting to make us sharers in his divinity, assumed our nature so that he, made men, might make us gods. Now, that last quotation was from St. Thomas Aquinas. We have to be careful we don't want to start to think of ourselves as divine but God in his goodness takes us into himself and he shares his divinity with us. A person who's living in sanctifying grace has God's life in his soul right now so in that way we are sharing in the life of God paragraph 461 the incarnation taking up St. John's expression the word became flesh the church calls incarnation the fact that the Son of God assumed a human nature in order to accomplish our salvation in it In a hymn cited by St. Paul, the Church sings the mystery of the Incarnation. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, And became obedient unto death even death on a cross the letter to the Hebrews refers to the same mystery consequently when Christ came into the world he said sacrifices and offerings you have not desired but a body you have prepared for me in burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure Then I said, Lo, I have come to do your will, O God. Belief in the true incarnation of the Son of God is the distinctive sign of Christian faith. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit which confesses that Jesus Christ has come into flesh is of God. Such is the joyous conviction of the church from her beginning whenever she sings the mystery of our religion. He was manifested in the flesh. It is true, the divine person of God took on a human nature, a real human nature. paragraph 464 true God and true man the unique and altogether singular event of the incarnation of the Son of God does not mean that Jesus Christ is part God and part man nor does it imply that he is the result of a confused mixture of the divine and the human He became truly man while remaining truly God. Jesus Christ is true God and true man. During the first centuries, the church had to defend and clarify this truth of faith against the heresies that falsified it. And there were a lot of heresies in the early centuries. And the church had to make it very clear exactly what we believed about the person and the nature of Jesus. 465. The first heresies deny not so much Christ's divinity as his true humanity. From apostolic times, the Christian faith has insisted on the true incarnation of God's Son Come in the flesh but already in the third century the church in a council at Antioch had to affirm against Paul of Samosata that Jesus Christ is son of God by nature and not by adoption the first ecumenical council of Nicaea in 325 confessed in its creed that the Son of God is begotten not made of the same substance as the Father, and condemned Arius, who had affirmed that the Son of God came to be from things that were not, and that he was from another substance than that of the Father. Arianism had spread very rapidly, and many people believed it, and the church had to be very um, clear and explicit. Arius said that Jesus was not God. And of course, we believe that he is. The apostles clearly taught that he was God. And Arius said that Jesus was not of the same substance as God, that he had been created by God. And so, in the Nicene Creed, we see the, uh, the the Church teaching very clearly that Jesus is God from God, Light from Light, True God from True God, begotten, not made. Arius said he was made, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Arius said he was a different substance than the Father. Through him all things were made. So we are confessing that Jesus is the Creator God and not a creature himself, which Arius had said. Paragraph 466. The Nestorian heresy, started by a guy named Nestorius, the Nestorian heresy regarded Christ as a human person joined to the divine person of God's Son. Opposing this heresy, St. Cyril of Alexandria and the third ecumenical council at Ephesus in 431 confessed, quote, that the word uniting to himself in his person, the flesh, animated by a rational soul, became man. Unquote. Christ's humanity has no other subject than the divine person of the Son of God, who assumed it and made it his own from his conception. For this reason, the Council of Ephesus proclaimed in 431 that Mary truly became the mother of God, by the human conception of the son of God in her womb mother of God not that the nature of the word or his divinity received the beginning of its existence from the Holy Virgin but that since the Holy Body animated by a rational soul which the word of God united to himself according to the hypostasis was born from her the word is said to be born according to the flesh. And Nestorius said you should call Mary the mother of Jesus, not the mother of God. But he's trying to split the divine person of God from the human nature of God, and that is not correct. The divine person of Jesus assumed a human nature and when Mary gave birth she didn't give birth to just a human nature she didn't give birth to a human corpse she gave birth to a person and that person Jesus is a divine person he is God he never stopped being God when he assumes a human nature, he never stops being God. So Mary is truly and rightly called the mother of God because she gave birth to Jesus, who is a divine person, who is God. Mother Mary's not the mother of the Trinity, She's not the mother of the Father. She's not the mother of the Holy Spirit. But she is the mother of a divine person, so she can rightly be called the Theotokos, the mother of God, the God-bearer. She bore God in her womb. 467. The Monophysites affirm that the human nature had ceased to exist as such in Christ when the divine person of God's Son assumed it. Faced with this heresy, the fourth ecumenical council at Chalcedon in 451 confessed the following. Following the Holy Fathers, we unanimously teach and confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity, The same truly God and truly man, composed of rational soul and body, consubstantial with the Father as to his divinity, and consubstantial with us as to his humanity, like us in all things but sin, he was begotten from the Father before all ages as to his divinity. And in these last days, for us and for our salvation, was born as to his humanity of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God. We confess that one and the same Christ, Lord, and only begotten Son, is to be acknowledged in two natures without confusion, change, division, or separation. The distinction between the natures was never abolished by their union, but rather the character proper to each of the two natures was preserved as they came together in one person and one hypostasis. After the Council of Chalcedon, some made of Christ's human nature a kind of personal subject, Against them, the Fifth Ecumenical Council at Constantinople in 553 confessed that there is but one hypostasis, or person, which is our Lord Jesus Christ, one of the Trinity. Thus everything in Christ's human nature is to be attributed to his divine person as its proper subject, not only his miracles but also his sufferings and even his death. He who was crucified in the flesh, our Lord Jesus Christ, is true God, Lord of glory, and one of the Holy Trinity. The church thus confesses that Jesus is inseparably true God and true man. He is truly the Son of God, who, without ceasing to be God and Lord, became a man and our brother. Uh, from the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. What he was, he remained. And what he was not, he assumed, sings the Roman liturgy. And the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom proclaims and sings, O only begotten Son and word of God, immortal being, you who deigned for our salvation to become incarnate, of the Holy Mother of God and ever Virgin Mary you who without change became man and were crucified O Christ our God you who by your death have crushed death you who are one of the Holy Trinity glorified with the Father and the Holy Spirit save us so jesus has always been god he has always been a divine person from all eternity without beginning jesus existed as a divine person but that divine person assumed a human nature in the womb of the virgin mary it did not stop him from being divine he is not a mixture of human and divine He is completely human, a completely human nature, and a completely divine nature. Um, The Monophysites, in their heresy, said that the divine person of Jesus... Uh, assumed or absorbed the human nature like a drop of water is absorbed into the ocean and it no longer remains just a drop of water. Uh, The fact is that even though Jesus was a divine person, he had a very distinct human nature that was joined to his divine personhood. And so when Jesus is doing a miracle, it is God who is doing the miracle. Jesus is a divine person, and he is God doing that miracle. It's not just his human body performing a miracle. Section four How is the Son of Man Son of God man? Paragraph four hundred seventy Because human nature was assumed, not absorbed in the mysterious union of the incarnation, the church was led over the course of centuries to confess the full reality of Christ's human soul, with its operations of intellect and will, and of his human body. In parallel fashion um, well before I go on uh, Jesus has a real human body you cut him he bleeds he he works he gets tired uh, at the end of the day he needs to sleep Um, and so he has a real human body and he has a real human soul and intellect Uh, with a human intellect he did not know all things Uh, He had to learn his ABCs. He had to learn how to saw a board in Joseph's workshop because he really had a human nature. And so real human beings don't know everything at the start of life. Uh, That doesn't come until they're 18 years old. When they're 18, then they know everything. (laughs) Um, I couldn't help myself. I teach teenagers. Um, in a real human nature, he had to learn um, he was like us in everything except sin, the scripture tells us. Continuing with paragraph 470. In parallel fashion, she, the church, had to recall on each occasion that Christ's human nature belongs as his own to the divine person of the Son of God who assumed it. Everything that Christ is and does in this nature derives from one of the Trinity. The Son of God, therefore, communicates to his humanity his own personal mode of existence in the Trinity in his soul as in his body Christ thus expresses humanly the divine ways of the Trinity Um, a quote from Gaudium et Spes The Son of God worked with human hands, he thought with a human mind, he acted with a human will, and with a human heart he loved. Born of the Virgin Mary, he has truly been made one of us, like to us in all things except sin. Christ's soul and his human knowledge. Paragraph 471. Apollinaris of Laodicea asserted that in Christ the divine word had replaced the soul or spirit. Against this error, the church confessed that the eternal son also assumed a rational human soul. 472. The human soul that the Son of God assumed is endowed with a true human knowledge as such this knowledge could not in itself be unlimited it was exercised in the historical conditions of his existence in space and time this is why the son of god could when he became man increase in wisdom and in stature and in favor with god and man and would have and would even have to inquire for himself about what one in the human condition can learn only from experience? This corresponded to the reality of his voluntary emptying of himself, taking the form of the slave. Yes, as I said a moment ago, as a, as a real human nature, he had a real human intellect. And so he had to learn things. And the scripture says he grew in wisdom and knowledge. Yeah, that's what happens with real human beings. Um, they, They grow in knowledge. They don't have all knowledge, infinite knowledge, the moment that they're created. Paragraph 473. But at the same time, this truly human knowledge of God's Son expressed the divine life of his person. The human nature of God's Son, not by itself, but by its union with the Word, knew and showed forth in itself everything that pertains to God. Such is, first of all, the case with the intimate and immediate knowledge that the Son of God made man has of his Father. The Son, in his human knowledge, also showed the divine penetration he had into the secret thoughts of human hearts. In the scriptures, we're often told that Jesus knew what they were thinking, knew what other people were thinking. This is due to the fact that he was God And as God, he knew all things, but as a human, uh, in a human nature, he had to learn things. How much did those two realities uh, interact with each other in the human intellect of Jesus is unknown. I can barely know what's going on in my own mind much less know what's going on in the mind of jesus of nazareth but we see jesus saying things that he could have no earthly knowledge Um, in the gospel he tells of things that will happen in the future he tells of things that happened far away he sees Nathaniel. And uh, Philip had spoken to Nathaniel far away, under a fig tree. And when Nathaniel showed up, Jesus said, Oh, here's Nathaniel. He is a true Israelite. And Nathaniel said, How do you know me? And Jesus said, I saw you sitting under the fig tree when Philip called you. Well, In that instance, Jesus was demonstrating a divine knowledge that no human could have had. It certainly impressed Nathanael. Nathanael immediately said, you are the Son of God. Jesus said, uh, you believe, Nathanael, because I told you I saw you sitting under the fig tree. He said, uh, believe me, you will see far greater things than that. And so he did. All right. Let us continue. Um... Have to find my place. I lost my place. Okay. Place in the Catechism. Okay. Paragraph four seventy four. By its union to the divine wisdom in the person of the Word incarnate, Christ enjoyed in his human knowledge the fullness of understanding of the eternal plans he had come to reveal. While he admitted to not knowing in this area, he elsewhere declared himself not sent to reveal. I think what the catechism is referring to there is Jesus says that uh, no one knows the day or the hour of his coming. But um, Jesus also says that it is not the time to reveal these things. As God, he knows all things. In his human nature, he does not know all things. Paragraph 475, Christ's human will. Similarly, at the Sixth Ecumenical Council, Constantinople, the, the Council of Constantinople III in 681, The church confessed that Christ possesses two wills and two natural operations, divine and human. They are not opposed to each other, but cooperate in such a way that the Word made flesh willed humanly in obedience to his Father all that he had decided divinely with the Father and the Holy Spirit for our salvation. Christ's human will does not resist or oppose but rather submits to his divine and almighty will. Uh, Christ's will is always in conformity with God's will. Paragraph 476, Christ's true body. Since the word became flesh in assuming a true humanity, Christ's body was finite. Therefore, the human face of Jesus can be portrayed At the 7th Ecumenical Council, the church recognized its representation in holy images to be legitimate. Yes, it's perfectly natural to show an image of Jesus because he had a real human nature. He really had a regular human face and body. And so it's perfectly legitimate to have a picture of him. 477 at the same time the church has always acknowledged that in the body of jesus we see our god made visible and so are caught up in love of the god we cannot see the individual characteristics of christ's body express the divine person of god's son he has made the features of his human body his own to the point that they can be venerated when portrayed in a holy image. For the believer who venerates the icon is venerating in it the person of the one depicted. So when we honor or put a candle in front of or put flowers in front of a painting or a statue of Jesus that is perfectly okay. We are not uh, worshiping or honoring the painting itself or the statue itself. We are honoring the person that is depicted in the statue. If I look at a picture of my wife, it's not that I love that picture itself it's that I love my wife and the picture is a reminder uh, of that paragraph 478 Jesus knew and loved us each and all during his life his agony and his passion and gave himself up for each one of us the son of God loved me and gave himself for me he has loved us all with a human heart for this reason the sacred heart of Jesus pierced by our sins and for our salvation is quite rightly considered the chief sign and symbol of that of that love which with the the Divine Redeemer continually loves the Eternal Father and all human beings without exception. In Catholic tradition we often have a picture of the Sacred Heart of Jesus or a statue of the Sacred Heart of Jesus and and this is is very appropriate. The heart is the symbol of love and Christ has certainly loved us. He has loved us unto death. He has sacrificed his, his life totally and completely for us in every way. And so to honor his sacred heart is uh, a very right and worthy thing to do. Because in doing that, you are honoring the love that Jesus has for every human being a love that goes beyond anything we could ever imagine that brings us to the end of um, that section and so um, I'm going to stop there um, at the end of paragraph 478 Let us pray in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dear Jesus, we love you. You took on a human nature to show us your love, to redeem us from our sins, to be a model of holiness for us. Lord, we love you very much. We pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, we might live holy lives and return that love which you have planted in our hearts glory be to the father and to the son and to the holy spirit as it was in the beginning is now and ever shall be world without end amen in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit amen